HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection between food and grief, with your hosts, Sara Tangora and Bobby Conforto. On this show, we're going to really explore where grief and food intersect, how they go hand in hand, different people's experiences with their specific traumas and how food played a part from the beginning to the end of that experience. And how as individuals, we uniquely process life's traumas and losses through either the longing for, the creating of, the avoiding of, the obsessing over, and the eating of food. I remember right after Michael died, I still miss him, but I missed him so badly that night that I stopped at the convenience store on the corner and I bought a container of Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia. It's too sweet, you know, it's too everything. And I went home with it and I took it to bed and I thought to myself, gee, so this is my first menage a trois after Michael's death. <laughs> Me, Ben, and Jerry. And I ate the entire thing. What do you think your relationship to food was during times of crisis? I think that um, my sister and I use food to reward ourselves. I wish I had something more no. interesting to say, but definitely like spaghetti and meatballs and chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> my mom still can't eat rugula. It makes her too sad. I've also experienced a lot of loss, as has Bobby. And I think we really wanted to find a way where we could like work together. There's something that feels very compelling about doing a project with you, Mom, um, as just kind of a missing piece in life and just something we've always wanted to do but not known quite how. can't think of anything better myself. I think that, I mean, any conversation about grief, I think, prepares everyone for grief because there are so few conversations about grief. It's why I think that what you guys are doing is so important. (laughs) 
This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We're back after a very, very long winter hibernation period. Um, Abian Trubeck is my guest today. She is the Associate Professor of Nutrition and Food and Science at the University of Vermont. Um, she's written three books on food and culture, Oak Cuisine, The Taste of Place, and Making Modern Meals. Her recent article, Restaurant 2.0, looks at what's wrong with restaurant labor and restaurant culture, and a few visionary establishments actively combating those problems. Welcome to the show, Amy. Hi, thank you for having me. So what might you see as the through line through your research, through these three books and your recent article? Sure. I mean, I have always been interested in cooking as a form of labor. Uh, so all, all of my books are looking at the transformation of food, of ingredients from the natural world, from the raw to the cooked, but in particular, the human engagement with that and what it takes to make that happen and how things, how cooking sort of has its own really complex history that has oftentimes not been told. Mm -hmm. And before we get into Restaurant 2.0, which I totally see as human engagement with food as labor, um, what is the a taste of place? What does that mean? So a taste of place was the way that I translated um, a term that's used a lot in France around food and wine culture called terroir, which could be uh, translated as soil. But in fact, as I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist, so for me, when I got, I started to understand or try to explore the world of terroir, I realized that it was really something about the sensory experience that human beings have with foods and drinks that come from certain places. And so that's what I, I ended up calling it taste of place. Hmm. And so with this labor of food, labor in food, what do we gain spiritually, emotionally, and intellectually from engaging with food? Yeah, so I, you know, it's funny because I both have kind of a very personal way of explaining this and I have, I guess, what we would call a more academic way of explaining it. I mean, personally, I'm somebody who in my life I have found the acts of making food to be some of the most gratifying experiences in my life. And, and also there, it's such a mix of tactical and embodied knowledge combined with a lot of having to understand the way the world works, both naturally and culturally. Um, and so I think that it's been a huge part of the human experience, uh, spiritually and emotionally, there's no question. Not for all people at all times, and not every day, but I think the potential is always there. Mm -hmm. So then, how do you feel about the kind of anti-reaction with like Soylent or Cliff Bars uh, yeah. or um, yeah, this new movement of kind of eating for fuel over happiness or enjoyment, I guess. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I do think about this a lot. And I mean, first of all, I do think that we have to, we do have to say and admit to ourselves, especially people who do imbue a lot of meaning to food that Food is fuel, and it is what it nourishes our bodies, and it's a part of the necessity of our biology that we eat. And so that there are people in the world who who understand primarily food as a form of fuel, it makes a lot of sense because, in fact, that's what it is. But it's what happens above and beyond that that I think is, is very interesting. I think one thing that I'm, I'm struck by is that a lot of the arguments that are being made right now about this food is fuel movement, which there's been for a long time. There's 
been predictions that we were just going to be consuming pills for a hundred years. You know, like what do we need all this stuff of preparation and restaurants and sitting around and talking about it and putting parsley garnishes on plates. Like it's sort of, what's the point of all this really? We're just trying to keep our bodies functioning. But, um, the thing that I find really interesting, I have taught, uh, about Soylent. I'm very interested in, and the sort of, um, this energy, the movement for sort of food energy kind of, and a lot of it is articulated in relationship is uh, in relationship to a problem of food and cooking in the modern United States in general, which is this notion of time poverty. So why would you bother to spend the time to not only, I mean, they don't even think you should, not just that you shouldn't spend the time making the food yourself, but you shouldn't really spend any time chewing it. Um, I just, I find that kind of, I find it fascinating. Yeah. 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 And so, Hmm. So then why then does it feel like going to a restaurant feels like an adequate use of our time, our energy, um, because it gives us a certain kind of entertainment? You mean, do I think that's why people are going? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think restaurants, again, you know, I think restaurants like just the idea of what a meal is, is actually just incredibly complicated and very contextual and very, it's also very fluid over in any especially anybody who lives in a in an, in an urban area and has a lot of access to just different ways that food is prepared. I mean, I think sometimes it's definitely entertainment. Sometimes it's convenience. Sometimes, you know, it has so many different functions for us, uh, restaurants. And I think it's the case even like, you know, I, what I can't, what I think somebody should really study is how, what number of people are actually using Soylent or these other forms of meal equivalents literally all the time. Like they're only drinking their food and they're never using whole foods or whole ingredients or they're never going out to eat. I think it's more that we want to cycle through options all the time. Mm. We want that level of flexibility and control over our relationship to the food that we eat and the amount of time we spend interacting with sort of what we have to do to get the food to feed ourselves. Mm -hmm. I actually have a friend who for the past few months has been solely, not Soylent, but a very similar liquid um, meal replacement. And he's been very happy. He's not significantly healthier or more fit or stronger. He just doesn't have to go through the motions of making meals. And I, I think it just... It's so fascinating because to me, making food is something I look forward to so right. much. At the end of the day, I want to cook a new recipe, try a new food, but for him, it brings him no joy. So then um, I think to push on my question earlier, with, which is what does cooking provide you and a lot of uh, foodie, yeah. I guess, people, um, what do you think we get from it? Well, I mean, I think, so, yeah. I think that it's, there's, there are many ways that you could kind of um, unpack this. I think that um, if I was going to just be general about it, rather than, let's say, a particular subset of, of people who have a kind of hyper-focus or hyper-interest in sort of the meaning of food, not just in their lives, but in life in general, right? So that might be you and I might have that kind of just much broader level of focus than the average American. Um, cooking might have meaning for us because it can be an ex not just an expression of self or an expression of obligation to others, but it can also be a form of an aesthetic kind of um, experience and a kind of, ex um, it's just an expressive experience in general. 
And I think it's really important to for us all to admit, in a way, that that's not something that everybody feels, nor do they have to feel, and nor do I feel it all the time. I mean, there's often days where I think, I don't want to deal with this. I've had a really busy day. I've had a long day. I don't have time. I, I just want to heat something up. I don't want to. I don't want to deal with it. But on a day when I want to express myself and I want to have that kind of combination of a nourishing and relaxing experience for me making a meal and particularly serving it for others is really, really gratifying. But I do that in the context of a certain amount of autonomy. And in the history of cooking, um, it's been primarily women's work and it's been highly gendered and not particularly something that the women who were responsible for doing it understood as expressive expression of self. It was more obligation to others. And I think that we're really in an interesting historical moment in the United States because it's been kind of opened up and it's become much more fluid where cooking happens and who does it. But it still has to get done, but then who should do it? And then women don't feel the same obligation, but they still feel a sense of guilt about it. So it's just, it's you know, cooking for me is, well, that's why I, I've been studying cooking for 35 years and I'm not done studying it because it's really, really dense and rich and complicated and situationally specific um, and yet part of the human condition and you know for someone like me that makes it a really really rich area to look into Mm -hmm. and then to add another layer what happens when you charge money for it and other people are to bring it to you and act nice and aren't necessarily compensated fairly for it so um, your recent rest uh, article is restaurant 2.0 so can you talk about restaurant 1.0 and and then get into the article sure i mean okay so there's a lot of really interesting ways to think about restaurants and i have done i don't consider myself like a restaurant scholar but i have spent a lot of time in my life looking at and studying restaurants historically to a certain extent so there's a couple things that I think are really important, and this is really important to understand both in cooking in homes and cooking in restaurants, which is the labor of cooking has always been either uncompensated or not particularly fairly compensated labor. So there was no perfect moment when everybody who worked in a restaurant for a wage made the money that would be equivalent of like what a lawyer would make. It has always been uh, historically sort of low-rung labor within the the context of, let's say, the modern period. And initially, people who worked cooking food for other people did it in domestic settings, particularly in, in, in the houses of the wealthy and the royal. And the emergence of the modern restaurant, which, you know, there is a case for it being having a very happening or the modern producing food that is purchased as some form of commodity for uh, an anonymous public maybe as equally uh, possibly happened at the same time in Asia as in Europe, but at least in the European context, it really emerged out of France and, um, you know, 250 years ago. And the people who were doing that work, who started thinking about restaurants, were really people who had been, there's a fair amount of evidence that they had been working in households, in large, wealthy households, but because of the revolution, there was all this transformation and change, and then all of a sudden, you didn't have these people who were going to be able to employ you, so then you had to come up with other ways of using your skills. So um, so restaurants, in that sense, I think, are really interesting because 
they have been always propped up on labor that would be considered to be, again, it's like, it's not just working class labor, but it's pre-industrial labor forms, right? So um, that I think is really important when you want to understand anything that happens with restaurants going forward. Um, it's always within that model. And also the work itself has been considered manual physical labor, not the, it, the work of the educated or the intelligentsia or, or, or the royals or anything like that because of its manual nature and because of its sort of material proximity to, in a sense, you know, the parts of life that if you have money or resources or education, you have sort of risen above. Mm. Um, so it's one of the reasons why I think when we want to understand what's happening to labor in restaurants today, it's, it's a bigger problem because it's not just a problem, a particular problem of this moment. It's a particular problem of the history of the very existence of these institutions. Mm. And, um, and so that I think is just so important for us all. You know, I'm very interested in restaurants in the future because if we look at all the trend lines of what's happening with cooking at home, what we're seeing at cooking at home is this in decline in the not only the amount of money people are spending on food that is prepared at home, but it's a decline in the percentage of whole foods that are being used to be prepared at home. So it's down to 5% of uh, the average American's total spending on food prepared at home is for what we would understand as whole ingredients like whole fruits and whole vegetables. Another 18% is food that could be considered sort of quasi-whole foods like rice uh, that's already been milled and processed and couscous and pasta. You know, it's already actually a little bit prepared. So only a quarter, 25% of the food that we're buying and working with every day in kitchens at home is just completely not been touched by other humans. Wow. And so we just have a lot of people in uh, who are working on our behalf to get our food prepared for us to some extent. And all the, it, the you know, 95% of those workers are people that are considered to be at the bottom rungs in terms of education and um, pay. Mm -hmm. the, the kind of elephant or paradox here is food has long since been seen as this kind of high expression of culture and aesthetic enjoyment um, but then it comes from like you said like lower rung workers and so has no one tried to kind of bridge that gap or how does that happen yeah when you say no one has bridged that gap you mean no one has tried to figure out a model for how you would do that mm -hmm. so that you would justly compensate your workers right like you you would think then if food has been seen as this i mean very elegant expensive often expression of our lifestyle then why shouldn't it be coming from more celebrity chef staffed places xyz you know oh or or more like people that are in a sense known for making money off of the food. Well, that's actually relatively recent, right? So, you know, one thing that I think is maybe hard for what I would call people that have been primarily in the 21st century people rather than 20th century people. So I'm definitely, I think a 20th century person, you know, and I, it's funny because even when I was young, you know, but especially like I think about in the 50s and the 40s, my father talking about going out to restaurants when he was young. And, 
you know, people didn't go out that often, right? They went much more often for special occasions. Now, you do have the rise of fast food, but the idea that if you made food for a living, you would have cultural status, that's literally 25 to 30 years old, right? Mm -hmm. Except for the occasional maybe French chef. And, you know, you you definitely have with the rise of television in the 60s and 70s, you have more awareness. But the idea that especially to be from a middle class or aspiring middle class background and to go into the world of food, until the 21st century, it was considered to be completely crazy. Like, why would you do that? It was considered to be work that was like being an electrician or being a plumber. It was, you know, it was skilled work, um, but it was manual work and it wasn't necessarily work that really was understood as being primarily expressive or aesthetic. It was more like you're a laborer and you don't have, you didn't go to college and you are in a technical school and you're going to do this work. So I think that that's just a really important part of this reality. And that what I think you see happening in the 21st century, which is where it gets, I think, even more kind of complicated and a more almost Baroque is, okay, you have just also more and more consumers willing to and wanting to eat food outside of the home. So you have more and more institutions available where you can purchase food outside of the home that's been processed by somebody who you don't know anything about, right? And so then you have so many options. You have the fast food options that have been in place for a long time. Then you have these sort of like um, mid-range chains that do serve you like a full meal. Then you have like the high-end fancy restaurants that are sort of the things that like were was was associated with sophistication, like Michelin-starred restaurants. And you would you would go to big cities. You would never expect that food in anywhere except for a major metropolitan area. But you have increasingly now in smaller cities um, and in different parts of regions, you have people creating restaurants that are considered to be good, really fine dining restaurants, but not this sort of out of reach quality of like, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a restaurant that uh, um, I'm not going to be able to do it in New York City from 50 years ago. But, you know, there was these kinds of restaurants and, and only a few, only certain people would ever go to those restaurants and you wouldn't feel comfortable. That's the other thing. Remember that high end restaurants and the idea of like aesthetically complicated status related food in the 20th century, up until the 1990s, I would say, or maybe the 1980s, it was there was a huge amount of performance to it where it wasn't a place that you felt welcome. You would not go to any fancy restaurant if you weren't dressed in a certain way, and you would be expected to be served in a certain way, and you would have to perform and sort of show your elite quality. Mm. But you have sort of a whole opening up with so many other kinds of restaurants opening, and then so many more people getting into food service who aren't necessarily trying to reproduce that particular kind of elite model from Europe or parts of Asia, you know, from the the early to mid 20th century. So that I think is part of what is sort of happening. It's so fascinating to me is like people go to eat all the time. They don't think that there's a, an idea, there's nothing rarefied about it anymore. It's like, no, it's like the act of doing business every week. Um, but the labor practices haven't really the, the, the labor model just stayed exactly the same, pretty much, except for the people at the top now. It's not just the people at McDonald's who are making money. It's also, like, the, the chefs who are owning, like, 27 restaurants or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're able to create enterprises where there's a group of people that can make a lot of money, but it's still propped up on the assumption that the manual labor of it is still kind of hourly wage work, not very well compensated, um, 
And that's tough. That's mm-hmm. tough. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. And we're back. Um, we were just discussing what we should discuss for the second <laughs> half. Um, yeah, so let's get into Restaurant 2.0. Um, yeah, let's talk about Juliet. Okay. So I, um, I found out about this restaurant... Um, because I was at a sort of a very funny public event a couple, three years or so ago, and um, Josh Lewin, who is the owner with um, his partner, um, Katrina, the this restaurant called Juliet in Somerville, and I was talking to him, and he was telling me about their vision for their restaurant, which was is based on, um, basically, there's no tipping, and everybody who works there starts making the same wage, and they do something called open book management, where everybody who works at the restaurant knows what's happening in terms of the costs um, and also the profits that are happening in the restaurant, and they everyone participates in that. And also there's a, there's a, a profit-sharing model. And I was very, very fascinated by his vision and just... and just his dream of what he wanted a restaurant to be because I worked in restaurants beginning when I was in high school and then I worked at a culinary school for many years and and because I'm also trained um, as a scholar and I had always this really in- this very profound interest in labor and I was so I've always been so struck by how odd as uh, Coral was pointing out this this odd juxtaposition between the excuse me, the aesthetic ends of so many people who are involved in the restaurant world who are really passionate about the idea of food, about being something about something of sensory quality, of aesthetic beauty, of social solidarity, of just all these incredible, like, noble social um, and human ends. And yet I was working in restaurants and seeing how things were actually working on the ground, which was there was just a lot of people were working really long hours for really low wages um, and I was like, I don't get this. Like, why is this the way this is organized? And a lot of it was because um, a lot of the people who were involved in the labor came from working class backgrounds and they didn't necessarily think that they should be expecting more. But I got into restaurants coming from a middle class background and I was like expecting more. And so a lot of this was from my own personal experience. And so Juliet to me was really fascinating because uh, Josh and... Katrina, they both they both sort of saw that right away. They had been involved in restaurants and for different reasons, um, which I which I actually didn't know when I started doing the research that Katrina came from a a family of labor activists. But it made a lot of sense to me once I talked to them because they have an extremely sophisticated model for how to run the restaurant, um, and it's really based on the idea that this should be a community and that this should be 
a sense of we are all in this together trying to create a message about food and the, the social pleasure of food and the aesthetic pleasure of food, but it's not a hierarchical system. It's a communal system. And of course, I'm very romantic about those kinds of things. So I loved it. Um, so I went and, and spent some time with them and I interviewed them and I, um, I just thought there's something there that it's a lot of it is that it's as much about having a kind of vision of what a business is related to restaurants as it is about the aesthetics of the food. And I think that one thing that I think about the restaurant industry is, is that the business part of it has tended to be not that sophisticated compared to some of the aesthetic ends of what the food comes out on the other side. So, you know, you think about those of you who are in New York, I mean, Danny Meyer, I think, has been very sophisticated mm -hmm. about his model for, you know, how a restaurant is actually literally run and how you don't have to run it according to these very old-fashioned models that really come from the 19th century and a very kind of sort of slightly domestic servant-slash-industrial-labor model. Um, when we are using restaurants for so many other purposes now, we don't really have to have the people making the food for us like living a 19th century life while we're in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually have a friend who works at a Denny Meyer restaurant and um, today is the first day that they'll be switching over to the profit share model uh. and her pay is dropping from $20 an hour to 15 and her whole team doesn't know, you know, how to oh. feel um, because they, they see the vision, but also it's, it's a lot to take on. So it's dropping because they have to then wait until the quarterly reports and then they're going to get mm -hmm. the profit share? Yeah, and I think the frustration lies in that there's not a lot of sharing of information yeah. or the books, and so it just feels like yeah. they've been, you know, kind of hitting over the head with this. Um, yeah, but let's get actually back to the Juliet, prof uh, the Juliet model, which... Let's start with no tipping. Um, why is that such a big deal? And what does that kind of look like concretely to the diner? So, so that is really interesting to me because tipping, there's no particular benefit to a diner, as far as I can tell, mm -hmm. from tipping. I feel like tipping is just some weird anachronistic action that people say has to happen in restaurants because of what some idea of service but our relationship to an idea of what is quality service is also so strange now like we'll actually accept pretty low from my point of view pretty low quality service restaurant at restaurants and we'll still tip 10 to 15 to 20 percent because it's just like the it's just like an everyday action in restaurants and but it doesn't really do anything for the consumer, and it really creates a lot of problems within the structure of restaurants because the people doing all of this physical manual labor to create the aesthetic end of these great meals, they're not necessarily, there's no regulation about tips being shared. So oftentimes the front of the house gets the tips, and they're living a whole life where they're able to get all this cash that sort of keeps them going in a certain way, whereas the back of the house is just... Is 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 create is working at a minimum wage now? Obviously, a tipped worker works at a terribly low wage, but on the other hand, they can go above minimum wage so quickly if they're in the right kind of place. Mm -hmm. So it's just a really odd system, and I think there are lots of ways that we could create incentives and for to have good service. And I don't think the tipping actually does that much. Mm -hmm. And so how does that look? It's just an automatic 20% tacked onto food prices. And so how then do you explain um, to hesitant diners 
that they're going to have to pay more for food? Well, I mean, I think if you if you organize your business in a in a good way, you you're you're telling a story about the quality of who you are as a business all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that the tip is, you know, and I, I don't think that you have to say that, oh, if I pay everybody the same wage and we don't have tipping, I'm not going to be able to afford my business. I don't, I can't, I don't really think it's what, it, how it works. Mm-hmm. I think that one thing that you do see, I think a lot in restaurants is a lot of restaurants are not well organized and there can be a huge amount of waste in the way restaurants are run. And so there can be ways in which, and I think that's what I see with, um, with Juliet, that they're just extremely conscientious about the everyday workings of the restaurant and being on top of everything. So food waste, if you reduce your food waste, you can reduce a lot of your food costs. And so you can see profitability in a way that Mm -hmm. if you're just running at this ad hoc level and you're just like slamming things in. And then the other thing that happens, which oftentimes people don't know who don't work in restaurants is there's a huge, because restaurants are so physically demanding and shift demanding in terms of when people work, you have high rates of turnover and you have a lot of recidivism, people leaving, but also people not showing up for shifts. And so you have a lot of ways in which you have a workforce that's only partially committed to you. And so you're always going to have problems in just the everyday runnings of a restaurant. But what you saw at a place like Juliet, if everybody has bought in, at least to some extent, they're equally committed to the enterprise. You have people, you don't have these chronic problems that you have in food service about always trying to hire people and, you know, just not wanting it, just wanting a live body to show up to wash the dishes. You don't care. You don't need to know their name. You don't Mm -hmm. care, you know, anything about them. You just want them to come in and wash your dishes. And you, and so you don't have that commitment to them and they don't have the commitment to you. And so I think that that's something that's really missing in the way that people understand restaurants. And it's funny, I was, I have a, a friend who um, studies film and we were talking about, you know, the making of films and, you know, how little we understand about, like, who works in a crew in Mm -hmm. the films and then what the assistant director does and, you know, all of the many complicated decisions that get made to have a film and yet we just consume a film without thinking we have to have any relationship to the labor involved in the film. But if you think it's food and going out to restaurants is an aesthetic experience as much as it is a convenience experience, well, okay, maybe we don't need to know what's happening behind the scenes. But on the other hand, when you start to see people creating these new alternative models for a restaurant, you start to realize that the whole enterprise can be lifted up if everyone who's involved in the process is sort of equally valorized, mm-hmm. not just the chef or even the consumer. Mm-hmm. And so then how does profit sharing um, kind of upend that model? I mean, I have to say, I don't live this experience. I just talk to them. <laughs> so I think it would be much, it would, would be really, you know, I'm always interested in the next study that we could do on restaurants. I think it would be really interesting to interview people that are involved in these new, the restaurants that are trying profit sharing. I mean, the idea is, at least like when I was talking to the folks at Juliet, is that you get a committed workforce. So people... They be, they're in the work. They're working for you for the enterprise. They're not working for you because they're an artist and they just need a shift on the side, or they're somebody who's um, an immigrant and doesn't know anywhere else that they could find a job. I mean, in those, the artist and the immigrant could work at Juliet, 
but they would be working there as part of a team. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's so fascinating is uh, food service work is actually extremely collaborative and team-based work, but the culture of restaurants is not Mm team-based. It's very odd to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then um, let's kind of telescope outwards. I mean, so I was then in preparing for this, kind of thinking about the difference between service at a kind of fast casual restaurant versus a more fancy, and you kind of expect the fancy restaurant to have waiters that are more knowledgeable um, and, uh, like you said, more performative. And so in Restaurant 2.0, in the future, how how do you see future waiters and waitresses kind of choosing their paths here? Just waiters and waitresses or all the staff? All the staff. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so one thing that I think is kind of interesting about this is is a lot of this is kind of models of work, work culture and work organization that may have nothing to do with the production of the food itself, but rather like how do you run a business? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think so I think the idea is is that whenever you use an industrial model for organizing work, the assumption is you can slot somebody in or you can slot somebody out and that the person themselves is not the person's intelligence or the person's capacity or the person's commitment to the the thing being made is secondary to the person's hands doing certain types of work, you know, the sort of the physical actions. And I think that at any level, you know, from, you know, a Chipotle to uh, Le Bernardin, I mean, if you are thinking about the person who's working for you and with you as a member of your team and as significant and important as because of who they are themselves rather than the just the task that they are going to perform, you are going to have a, a better workforce. I mean, I've worked for long enough in many different settings. The more engaged people feel and the more they feel, in a sense, acknowledged for who they are as a person, the better they work. So, and so I think that's one thing that I think that we also, you know, we don't think about and we don't put this in restaurant reviews is like, we should have a restaurant review system for the restaurant with the least amount of employee turnover. Hmm. And you should go to that restaurant because that's telling you that that the person who owns that restaurant cares about their employees because they don't leave. Mm-hmm. And if you go to a restaurant, it could be the most amazing restaurant that has the most interesting, newest, squid ink, you know, pillow stuffed with whatever. And if they have constant turnover, then you're learning something that, do you want that food? Like, has anybody really cared or loved that food for you on your behalf? So those are the types of things I think, well, you know, I think we need to almost open up. And that's what I was sort of doing with this Restaurant 2.0, which I wrote for um, Gastronomica, which is a a journal, uh, sort of a scholarly journal, but also a public reader journal. I was thinking about why don't we write different kinds of restaurant reviews? Why isn't somebody working for the LA Times or the New York Times and all they do is look at quality of labor and then you 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 get to say oh wow or the new yorker why doesn't the new yorker have a little some but one of their restaurant people going out and just finding out like it could be a small family-owned rest business making some food and it's just everybody in the family's there but they've been there for multi-generations and they're happy with it or it's some higher-end restaurant where nobody's left for five years those are interesting places i would want to go eat there mm-hmm. yeah i think 
maybe you and I and listeners of the show would be very invested and interested in that, but how do you get the consumer, the casual diner to consider the meal for more than just the, like the movie, like you said? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this is, you know, tough with food right now anyway, because, um, there's been a lot of, in, you know, the food movement of the early 21st century was very interested in this idea of, you know, know where your food comes from. And if you know where your food comes from, you're going to make choices that are going to help us kind of repivot some of the sort of negative consequences of a food system that's primarily industrialized and globalized and really embedded in, a, in an extractive system that extracts a lot from the environment and from people. So the question is, you know, do you want to add restaurants to that world and say, okay, you need to know where your labor comes from. You need to know what their wage is. You know, it's, it kind of is a burden. It makes going out to eat kind of a drag because mm-hmm. you're like, really, I have to think about all this. I just want to have a nice meal with my friends. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think it has to be much more based. It, I don't think it's really about the consumer. I think it's about business and and the organization of business and how do you make really good, viable, vibrant long-running businesses where everyone who's involved feels like they're having a good experience. And some of that could be regulated, you know. I mean, we could have much better regulation as to quality standards for food, quality standards for health, and quality standards for labor. You know, the the food, food is not in some ways highly regulated at that restaurant level. It's, it can be highly regulated at that more industrial manufacturing level, or there are more government and national government systems for regulation. But, you know, these smaller scale individual entrepreneurial e- e- efforts, and that's partly why people go into those businesses, because they don't want to be highly regulated. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's an interesting question. If we're going to increasingly eat out at restaurants, I mean, the I think it's going to be, could be, oh, it's over 50% of the amount of uh, dollars spent by Americans on food is on food prepared outside of the home now. And it's, it's the trend lines are just going. So that's only going to go up and eating at home is going to go down. I mean, people, I mean, if you want healthy, just and safe food, it's going to be at most people, it's going to happen at restaurants. And we are not doing anything about that, really. Mm-hmm. Some great food for thought, food for thought to mm-hmm. end on. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amy. Thank you for having me. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.